Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples. And Peter, don't you just love that? That he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly. And fled from the tomb. For they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. We come to the final chapter in Mark's gospel. And in this chapter, Jesus rises from the grave, defeating death for all time and ascends to heaven after giving his disciples the command to preach the good news to the whole world. The chapter begins with a resurrection announcement in verses one through eight, and then it will continue with a series of resurrection appearances. Several years ago. I briefly pastored a church on Lookout Mountain, and my sons were very, very young. And on our way to church, we would leave Lakewood and we would drive past Fort Logan Cemetery. There were endless rows of white tombstones in perfect order. My young Jonathan, who at the time was about six years old, pressed his face against the window and wondered out loud. Is this the place where the dead people live? That's what I did. I I chuckled under my breath. And I thought to myself. Dead people don't live anywhere. People who make the journeys. To cemeteries, don't expect to find the living, but the dead. The two Marys and Salome expected to find Jesus' dead body. They expected to cover Jesus' body with powerful and pungent spices to mask the awful odor that signals the beginning of decomposition. The women expected to find a dead body, not an empty tomb. They expected the tomb's entry would be guarded by soldiers and a massive solid stone six feet tall by six feet tall would block their entry. They expected grief and tears and sorrow and heartache. And why not? Have you ever visited a cemetery? 
Have you ever walked through a mortuary? What did you expect to find? And what did you find? What they found was an open entry and an open tomb. What they found was an angelic messenger with a fairly simple sermon. Quote, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and <laughs> Peter that he's going before you into the Galilee. And there you will see him as he said to you. A very large stone rolled away, an empty tomb, a brief, did I say brief, brief message from an angelic visitor. What did you expect this morning? I like what you said, preacher, about the brief part. Wouldn't you love that? No, I'm just teasing. I heard the story of a little girl who at dusk was preparing to enter a cemetery. And there was an old man who sat at the gate and he said to her, aren't you afraid to go into a cemetery at dark? And she said, oh, no, my home is just on the other side. And for those of you who have gathered together this morning to have this brief visitation, it should give you great comfort that our home is just on the other side. Look at verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. All four Gospels are united in their testimony. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them declare that Jesus died on a Roman cross. The religious leaders witnessed the execution. John the Apostle, along with several women, witnessed the death and execution of Jesus. The Roman soldiers witnessed the death of Jesus. And those who witnessed the death of Jesus were clearly unaware of its significance. But no one, no one, no one who saw him die doubted the reality of his death. The women expected to find a dead body. You'll remember in chapter 15, as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus removed the dead and lifeless body from, G from, from the cross. They wrap it in spices and linen cloth and they take him and they wash his body and they take him to a grave and the women follow from afar and they follow him to the place where he lays. The disciples were convinced that Jesus was dead. The religious leaders saw his dead body. But unlike the women or the disciples, they remember Jesus' prediction that's found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62, 63, 64, and 65. The religious leaders, it says, on the next day, the day following his death, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. 
Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, I wonder if he smiled. He said to them, you have your guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. The religious leaders feared that the disciples might steal the body. But in making this preparation, the enemies of Jesus insinuated that they might steal the body. And oddly enough, it becomes the very mechanism which means that stealing the body would never serve as a plausible explanation of what happened to the body of Jesus. The religious leaders insisted that a guard be placed to ensure that the disciples didn't engage in what Father O'Day, when I was a young man growing up, would say, in some saintly shenanigans. We want to make sure that nothing goes wrong. The enemies of Jesus insinuated that the disciples stole the body. So what really happened to the dead body of Jesus? Did Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus and the disciples, mount a midnight Israeli-style commando, overcome the Roman guard, spirit away the dead body of Jesus, and hide it effectively? Were the Roman guards paid off by the misguided disciples in order to ensure the theft of the body could be done in a convincing fashion? Does it make sense to you that the frightened disciples could have orchestrated the theft of a dead body? It's okay. You can talk to me. Pretend like it's a Pentecostal church. What do you think? Sound plausible? Does it make sense to you that the religious authorities would steal the body? No. If any of those things were true, once the disciples started making claims of a resurrected Jesus, all they would have to do is produce the body. And as my dad would often say growing up, no body, no crime. So how about the swoon theory? The theory that alleges that only Jesus pretended to die on the cross. And after being beaten by a Roman whip, his flesh lacerated, his muscles torn, his face swollen, his eyes shut, his beard partially ripped off his face, his hands and his feet first tied to a piece of wood and then nailed to a Roman cross, a spear placed under his ribcage in the percardium sack penetrating into his heart where blood and water flow and he manages to completely fool the Roman centurion and the the Roman soldiers and Joseph of Arimathea along with Nicodemus wrap him in linen with a hundred pounds of pungent spices and take and place him in an airless tomb with a two and a half ton rock and that somehow he regains consciousness. He removes the linen and the spices and rolls the two and a half ton stone from the other side, slips past the guard and announces that he's risen from the dead. I 
I know you believe that Elvis is also alive, don't you? Does that make sense to you? Does that sound like a plausible explanation? Another possibility is that the women got it wrong. Even though they witnessed Jesus die, even even though they followed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb, watched them place his body in the tomb, watched as gravity took the stone in a semicircular ravine and rolled the stone in front of the tomb. And remember, it was placed there with the hopes that it would never, ever, ever be opened. Imagine that they didn't go to the right grave. They they went to a wrong grave. They concocted a story based on grief, coupled with sleep deprivation, filled with wishful thinking, and then they shared a common hallucination. Does that sound reasonable? Let's be honest. The grieving women came to the tomb and they expected to find a dead body. You don't purchase funeral supplies for someone who's still alive. Look at verse 2. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. It's such a familiar story, isn't it? They come, and you can almost imagine how Bright and clear and blue the sky was and how fluffy white the clouds. Probably this morning you heard birds singing. And somehow the sky seems bluer and the air cleaner and the songs more beautiful today. And they said among themselves in verse three, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? In their wildest dreams, they didn't imagine that they would be able to do it. I want you to think for just a moment of what you are reading. What did they expect to find? A dead body. What did they expect to find? A blocked entry. Matthew's gospel reports that there was a large stone rolled in the front of the tomb. Mark's gospel in the very next verse says, For it was a very large stone. In today's vernacular, we would have said, that's a humongous stone. In Italian, we would say, hey, get a load of that rock. (laughs) Just how large was this rock? There's an ancient manuscript in the Cambridge Library in England from a very, very early parchment of this particular passage of Scripture. In Mark 16.4, There is a note, a remark that has been added to this portion of scripture. It reads, and when he was laid there, he, Joseph of Arimathea, put against the tomb a stone which 20 men couldn't roll away. Isn't that interesting insight? Some Bible scholars have estimated again that that would have put it at four and a half, maybe five thousand Pounds. This would be difficult even for several MMA champions to roll away. 
So who moved the stone? Who moved the stone? We know the angel of the Lord rolled away the stone. Again, from other accounts, the angel didn't move the stone in order to let Jesus out, but in order to let the disciples in. The other Gospels record that the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, literally picked up the stone as if it were a marshmallow, plucked it onto the side, and then he himself sat on top of that rock. And he didn't do it in order to let Jesus out. But in order to let the disciples in. In order to let you in. You see, the end of the world began with a resurrection. And look what the women really did find. Look at verse 4. It says, but when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you, but it might. Does it surprise, to, surprise you that God will sometimes graciously remove the obstacles that stand in the way of true believers? You see, the world largely is divided into two groups of people, those who do believe in those who don't believe. We might even further divide it into two groups. Those who do believe or those who don't want, those who don't believe, but they desperately want to. They want to believe. They want to believe, but they can't get past their own doubt and skepticism. But for those who want to worship and serve the Lord, he's going to reward even tiny faith. Look what it says in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. By the way, the word alarmed is only used here in the Greek New Testament. It's a compound verb. It was a word that was used in the ancient world to express fear and agitation. The word could reasonably be translated terrified. Probably a more appropriate word in our vernacular would be freaked out. The young man was an angelic being. As a matter of fact, Luke's gospel reveals that his clothes were glowing. They radiated like lightning. And if you went inside of a tomb and found an angelic being glowing in the dark, you would go, oh, I wonder what's going on here. You might be thinking, well, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe in spooky phenomenon. Okay? The tomb is empty. There's a glowing guy inside. Where did the body go? The angel of the Lord isn't opening an X-file. He isn't gathering information for an episode to air later on unsolved mysteries. And I want you to note what happens. The angel invites the women in to see for themselves. L let me ask you a question. 
Have you ever seriously evaluated the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought long and hard about the facts and the issues and the circumstances surrounding the death and then the resurrection of Jesus? Look what it says in verse six. But he said to them, this is the angel, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him before we think about the angel's words. I want you to think about what he didn't say. I want you to think about what the angel does not say. The angel doesn't say, ladies and gentlemen, back off. Step away from the empty tomb. Step back. We're going to conduct a crime scene investigation. Angels put Holy Spirit tape around the area. Let's just see what we can do to figure out. This is a crime scene. We're conducting an investigation. We don't want you to disturb the evidence. This is interesting. Because this is the angels in the gospel's invitation to come forward. To think out loud and to ask questions. The angel doesn't say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I just want you to believe this by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I want you to just take my word for it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, don't ask me any more questions. He doesn't say, look, I'm going to give you a very special tablet with magic glasses and reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And you can read it for yourself and you can make it say whatever you want. He doesn't say any of those things. Instead, the angel invites them to come and check out the facts and to use common sense. The statement, he is risen, he is not here. Unfortunately, I've been to a lot of different graveyards, cemeteries. In California and Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado and Louisiana. Everywhere there's graveyards. And I've been to a lot of them. And I've seen a lot of funny tombstones. Written with a lot of funny sayings. I have never seen a single tombstone that read, Nobody home. This, tomb, this tombstone and this grave is different from every other grave in the world. The resurrection is going to change everything. Death is powerful and painful. Powerful because sin will have its way in our mortal flesh. And painful because death and tears are at the heart of our human experience. And if you live long enough... The truth is you might have to do what you would hope that you would never have to do. And that's to bury someone that you love. And to walk away from that grave. People have to deal with death. Not too long ago I was watching a special on television about a family here in the front range of Denver whose daughter disappeared under 
difficult and mysterious circumstances. And they spent a week looking for her and then another week and then a month and then weeks and months went by and they went to extraordinary means to try and find the person who had perpetrated the crime. But they always had hope that their daughter might still be alive. And sadly and tragically, but gladly to the efforts of great Denver police officers, they were able to find the perpetrator who confessed to where he had hidden her body. And the district attorney and the investigators who went to go and dig up her grave. In their mind were the images filled with this living, loving, bright, articulate young lady. And the images of Jesus that we've read in the first and the second and the third and the fourth, the fifth chapter of Mark. We've walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and interacted with Jesus. Think about the irony of where you are. You're at a tomb and think about what's going on. The man who was supposed to be in the tomb is supposed to be dead, but he's alive. And the soldiers guarding the tomb on the outside are supposed to be alive, but they're pretending like they're dead. Matthew 28, 4. And the guards shook for fear of him, the angel, and became like dead men. Think about the whole contingent of Roman soldiers just said, Oh, let's just all pretend like we're dead. (laughs) See, we laugh, but I need to tell you something. The Roman guard were battle-tested and seasoned warriors. These are men well-acquainted and trained to kill other people. A Roman soldier's courage was legendary. But even they couldn't prevail In a fight with an angel from heaven. Isn't it ironic that some we think dead are really alive and some that we think are alive are really dead? The angel says, don't be alarmed. I suspect that if he hadn't said that, the girls would have fainted dead away. Ladies, don't panic. And by the way, when the Lord God commands something, it's not just simply an imparting of information. But I want to draw your attention to something that I'm hoping is going to help you in the not too distant future. That when the Lord asks you to do something, he's also going to give you the courage and the strength to absolutely do that. When the Lord says, I want you to believe, you can believe. When the Lord says, I want you to walk away from sin, you'll be able to do that. You see, the message of the resurrection involves a person. He says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. This is not just simply a message about don't be afraid, but have hope. This isn't a philosophical message. This isn't a message that's just supposed to stir you up on the inside and challenge you on the outside. The moment that the angel says, don't be afraid, you're looking for Jesus. The implication is that there's a sense of strength and hope and the absence of fear, you would hope. Fear paralyzes. Hope liberates. 
fear monopolizes attention and so does pain. When you are afraid and you are in pain, sometimes the fear and the pain crowd out every other emotion. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. And the first message of the resurrection is the message of the exorcism of fear, the casting out of fear. You're looking for Jesus, the man who was crucified, not a metaphor, not a symbol. He is risen. And for centuries, Christians have repeated that message. My friend Josh McDowell, who was conducting a seminar and a speech in South America, was once asked, why do you believe in the resurrection? And he said, I can't, I can't, I can't make the resurrection of Jesus go away. Josh McDowell wrote, quote, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of humanity. Or it's the most important fact of history, unquote. The empty tomb is one issue that has pained and perplexed people for 2,000 years. Other religions have dead founders where you can go and visit their grave. When I was a young man, even before I, I, I actually received Christ as my Lord and Savior, I heard a preacher preach a sermon where he talked about that thousands, even tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people make the journey from India to Sri Lanka to visit a shrine. The shrine allegedly contains the single tooth of the Buddha who ex somehow escaped uh, extermination. People will travel to Mecca and Medina. People will go all over the world visiting the graves of the dead. But Jesus is alive. His empty tomb bears silent witness. But the filled and the forgiven hearts of countless millions of people bear abundant witness that Jesus is alive. The historian Paul Mayer wrote, quote, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has ever been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, which is ancient writing, archaeology, which is ancient dirt, that would disprove this statement. John Dominic Crossman, a skeptic doubter, unbeliever, said, and a Ph.D., by the way, said, I believe that Jesus was crucified. He's from Ireland. I believe he was crucified. And then they took his dead body from the cross. They buried him in a shallow grave and ancient dogs came and ate his body. Someone actually asked him. Do you have any evidence to support that? And he said, no. And then they said, why do you believe that? And he said, that's what seems to make the most sense to me. So which of us really are men and women of faith? 
By the way, he is risen. Three English words, but it's only one Greek word. In the Greek language, it is one simple word, but in one sense, the whole gospel rests on the single word raised. Because if that is true, then that means everything is different. Number one, we have evidence for the reality of God. The passive points to the active. The passive points to the person who did the raising. The one that Jesus calls his father. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then there's probably a real God. And number two, there's a reply to the question of death. What happens? What happens? What happens when I die? If God really did raise Jesus from the dead, then there's a good chance that he's going to raise me. And you, this is why Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. There's also good reason to believe that we survive in a conscious state, aware of who we are. Aware of what we've done. Aware of where we are. And number three, there's purpose in life. You know, the Pew Forum recently did a religious survey. They spoke to a number of young people between the age of 18 and 29, fully 20 percent. One out of every five were asked the question, what is the purpose of life? One in five said, I don't know. But if Jesus is raised from the dead. Then life has meaning. It has purpose. It has direction. Do you understand that the Bible says that simple faith will be will be rewarded with ample evidence? Look what it says in verse seven. The angel says, but go tell his disciples (laughs) and Peter that he's going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Remember, Jesus promised that he would come back to life. It isn't just simply the testimony of the angel. It isn't simply the testimony of the empty tomb. The word of Jesus. The empty tomb. The word of the angel. Now, you need to understand something. The women are rewarded for their love and devotion. And it is love and devotion that brings these women To a grave that they think is filled with the dead body of a person that they love. It wasn't faith. It wasn't faith that brought them to the tomb that morning. You know, a lot of people, as unbelievable as this may seem, they don't come to church because of faith. They don't come to church because they believe that a real God raised a real Jesus from a real grave. They come for love and devotion because they love their mom. They love their dad. They love their husband. They love their wife. They love their family. And so they go through what they think is the emotions of a religious ritual in order to make their family happy. But they wind up seeing an angel. They wind up seeing an empty tomb. They wind up 
experiencing a supernatural visitation. These women are given a commission. Go. Tell. The commission to preach the gospel of the resurrection. Go and say that Jesus is risen from the dead. Think about what you're reading. The women were sent as apostles to the apostles. The empty tomb and the angel's declaration include a little tiny note to Peter. Tell his disciples. And Peter. Why the special note to Peter? I suspect that Peter was in a different state of mind. I'm going to suggest to you that Peter was in a separate state of sorrow, a separate state of pain, a separate state of depression. The kind of sorrow and the kind of depression and the kind of darkness and emptiness That's brought about by a failure that you think that you can never recover from. Where you can never return from. It could be that Peter had thoughts that his actions and his disobedience and his denial had brought him to a place where there would be no mercy for him. There would be no forgiveness for him. There would be no grace for him. There would be no restoration for him. And it is true. That Peter sinned greatly and repeatedly. Maybe you've sinned greatly and repeatedly. Maybe you've been trapped in the cycle of sin and you have been trapped in the cycle of rebellion and disobedience and denial that you have denied what you knew from the very start, that you denied the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. You denied what you experienced early on in your life. You denied the fact that you had walked with him and talked with him and lived with him and breathed with him and you've experienced the miracles of his love and the miracles of of his ministry, but you've repeatedly sinned and you've sinned greatly and you've thought, look, I'm here in church and I'm going to church, but this church stuff and this Jesus stuff isn't for me. I'm past the point of no return. I'm past the point of hopeful restoration. And you want so much for the angel To have said, go tell his disciples. And you wish to God that you could insert your name right there. Not Peter, maybe it's Sam or John or Melissa, Rebecca, Mary, Susan. You want so much to be able to. To put your name right there. What if I suggested to you that that's exactly what you could do? I think it's worth noting that Jesus came looking for Peter. And it wasn't Peter who came looking for Jesus. And you may have come to church not looking for Jesus. Never in your wildest dreams imagining that he might show up and speak to you. And look for you. Does that shock you or surprise you? That he loves you? And that he's looking for you? 
that he wants to forgive your sin. And he wants to transform your life. And he wants the emptiness to go away and the darkness to go away and the guilt to go away. Are you still afraid? Look what it says in verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and they were amazed and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. How sad. How sad that fear and emotion could discourage you to the place of silence so that you won't speak the message of hope. You know, the story is told of a group of students from Toronto who went out on a fishing expedition in one of Canada's great bays and they hired a boat and they hired a captain to take them out into the water and without warning, a storm broke. And the the captain, an old sea dog, sat at the helm of his ship with this deep, expression of concern on his face and the students laughed at his fear and through their laughter they said we're not afraid and the old captain looked at them and said I know you're too ignorant to be afraid not all fears are bad there are some fears that are wholesome there are some Fears that are necessary for life itself. The fear of God, the fear of fire, the fear of electricity, the fear, yeah, of judgment. But not the fear of man. Not the fear of death. Not the fear of rejection and ridicule. Let me be blunt. You never have to be afraid of the truth. And the truth is that Jesus is risen from the dead. He is risen. He is not here. I want you to think about how much depends on those two simple sentences. Can I prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, what are you willing to accept as evidence? Would you come to Jerusalem with me? And you can visit the empty tomb with me. And you might say, it's just a hole in the ground. What if I told you that he changed my life? You might say, dancing with the stars changed my life. You might say, Jesus was just a mythological figure. You might say, Jesus was just a man. You might say, Jesus' followers made the whole thing up. Really? then how do you explain that each and every one of them would live a life of sacrifice and service and experience death itself? You might say the witnesses are unreliable. You might say that the physical resurrection of Jesus isn't even important to the church today. 
But the evidence for Jesus isn't limited to the New Testament documents. Jesus is mentioned in 39 ancient sources. The evidence supports that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. The evidence suggests that Jesus' followers didn't make it up. That deception is highly unlikely. The women were afraid and thought that someone had stolen the body. That they would concoct such a scheme it makes no sense whatsoever. And when Jesus appeared, the women worshipped him and shared the news. The reliability of the resurrection is supported by many witnesses and the absolute lack of evidence on the part of the critic and the skeptic and the unbeliever is really what's overwhelming. Christianity didn't begin as a moral and a philosophical movement. It didn't begin in mystery. But in history. And so what stone is left Tell me about the thick, heavy objection that lies against the surface of your soul that refuses to allow entry. You might say the resurrection is not important. But the physical resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that has ever happened. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then the unbeliever and the make-believer and the critic and the skeptic is no worse than when I first began this sermon. However, if Jesus did rise from the grave, and it's reasonable, not unreasonable, to believe everything that he claimed is true, then you can experience hope. And love and forgiveness and eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus provides conclusive proof of his identity and of his divinity. John fourteen nineteen, Jesus said, Because I live, you shall live also. And as important as that is, and as true as that is. There's an even more wonderful truth. Because he lives, you can be different today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. Your life can be different today. The poet said, He lives. O fainting heart anew, with joy thy Lord and Savior view. He from the silent chamber woke and speaks again. As ere he spoke a quickening hand he has to give he lives and you shall also live not everyone you think is alive is and not everyone you think dead is let's pray heavenly father Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Lord, we know that it's very reasonable, not unreasonable, to believe that everything Jesus claimed to be true, that he died for the sin of the world, and that we can receive eternal life by believing him and trusting him and receiving him. 
Lord, we know that the Apostle Paul told the skeptics in Athens that God wanted people everywhere to repent of their sin because God has set a date when he will judge the world by Jesus. And he cites as proof that God raised him from the dead. And if that's true, Lord, then everything's changed. Everything's different. In Jesus' name. Amen.